We'll turn with me now in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read briefly from Romans chapter 15. Our sermon passage this morning is from Proverbs chapter 11. We'll be turning over to Proverbs chapter 11 in just a moment. But first, let's read from Romans chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made to the fathers, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. For this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse. And he shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles shall have hope. Now, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Apostle Paul reminds us that some of us enjoy strength. Some of us remember enjoying strength. Those days are gone. Some of us still enjoy a bit of strength. Once upon a time, I like to run with my sons. I found out they could outrun me. I don't enjoy it as much. The strength wanes. But Paul says to those that have great strength, they should use it for those who are weak. They should lend their strength to those that have no strength. And he gives an illustration, a motivation by which to pursue such a life. He says this is what Jesus did. Jesus, who had superlative strength, who had all the strength in the world, used his strength for us, we who had no strength. Now, if we're going to live in this sacrificial manner, giving our strength to one another, that we might be united in the worship of God, Paul recognizes we're going to need something extraordinary Supernatural, unusual. It's a four-letter word. Starts with H and ends with O. It's hope. Friends, 
The reality is that when you give your strength to those who are weak, and when you live to bear with the scruples of others, it is very frustrating and exhausting. Yes? It is hard to bear with those who are weak. And so, in the second half of our passage, Paul says, hope. In Christ, he has given us hope. In the spirit of Christ, he has given us hope. In the promises of the old covenant, now fulfilled before our eyes in the unification of Jew and Gentile, he has given us hope that we together should worship God, that he might cause us to abound in hope. That we would not grow weary, as he said in Galatians, of doing good. With this in mind, turn back to Proverbs chapter 11. Our sermon passage this morning is from Proverbs chapter 11. And I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 18. Proverbs chapter 11, verses 10 through 18. Here again, the word of the Lord. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there is jubilation. By the blessing of the upright, the city is exalted. But it is overthrown by the mouth of the wicked. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. A talebearer reveals secrets. But he who is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. He who is surety for a stranger will suffer. But one who hates being surety is secure. A gracious woman retains honor. But ruthless men retain riches. The merciful man does good for his own soul. He who is cruel troubles his own flesh. The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. Amen and amen. Recently, Lydia and I were walking home from Boston. We were going down Commonwealth Avenue. We hang a left on the BU Bridge. You guys know where I am? We're starting out across the BU Bridge. It's late in the afternoon. You know when the sun sets at this time of year? And as we're going out across the BU Bridge, we're halfway across to Charles, and we glance back over our shoulders, and all the glass of Boston is aglow in sunset. Red and orange and pink are dancing up the glass, and the whole skyline is on fire. The dark green and blue river stretches out beneath us. Some commuters know what I'm talking about. The beauty of sunset right at the edge of Boston and Cambridge. And I I was struck in the middle of the bridge. That's what makes Boston beautiful. We get to the other side of the bridge. And does anyone know what is at the other side of the BU Bridge here on the beautiful Cambridge sign? There's all the tents for all the homeless people right at the edge of the bridge, right at the edge of the river. And I thought, now what would make that beautiful? And then you pass underneath the memorial, you know, overpass, right? 
Have you ever been underneath that thing? You know why it shakes and vibrates so much? It's made out of wood. And I think to myself, well, what would make that beautiful? It's just after dusk as we come into Central Square and the nightlife is coming to life. And I think, now what would make that beautiful? We get home and I park in the green chair in the living room and I open up Proverbs chapter 11 and I read these words. When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. A sunset on the Charles River sure makes Boston beautiful. You know something that makes it far more beautiful? Jesus. The love of Christ at work in the church of Christ. You see, the gospel truth for us this morning from Solomon's wisdom is that Jesus makes us good neighbors. When Jesus is at work in us, we become good neighbors. And so his command to us today is that we would live kindly with one another. That we would live kindly with each other. Think about this for a bit with me. Notice that Solomon begins by addressing his royal son, his crown prince, the heir to his throne, by saying that a city rejoices when it goes well with the righteous. In like manner, in verse 11, that when the blessing of the upright is upon them, the city is exalted. There is a relationship between the righteous and the city. That when the righteous does well, the city does well. We could apply this singularly to the person of Jesus Christ, of course. That when it goes well with Jesus, a city is happy. And when Jesus is blessed, the city is exalted. But that doesn't seem to be our experience in the Gospels, is it? Is Jerusalem thrilled when Jesus comes in? Well, at the start of the week, yes. But at the end of the week, they're crying, crucify him. What is more, we could apply it to the experience of the church. That when the righteous do well, that is the church, those who are righteous in Christ, the city rejoices and the blessing of the upright exalts the city. This is only true in this sense that the righteous become conduits of blessing. You see, the vision that Solomon has for his son as he comes to power in the kingdom is that he would do well, and then through him, everyone else would do well as well. You see, this blessing of the upright is not merely the blessing upon the upright, but the blessing that the upright give. That as they do well, others are blessed. Solomon contrasts it. When the wicked perish, there is jubilation. There is a great happiness that ripples through the line. When the news goes out, the wicked are dead. There was such joy that filled the armies of America all across Europe when they heard that Hitler had taken his own life. There was such jubilation because the mouth of the wicked overthrows the city. The words of the wicked cause harm in the city. The city does not rejoice when the wicked are in power, when the wicked speak their wicked words. The city is not built up. It does not grow up. It does not exult. It does not rise in power or privilege. 
How many of you know the name Johnson or Endicott Johnson? All right, I got one because they used to live there. This is a shoe company from the 1800s. This guy decided to make shoes. And he made really, really good shoes. And America gave him a lot of money to make really good shoes. You know what Mr. Johnson did with all that money? He built the city of Endicott and the city of Johnson City, where there was free health care for all his employees, where there was free housing for all his employees, where there were schools for all the employees' children, where there were free shoes for all the children when they went to school. When the righteous got rich, the city rejoiced. In his blessing, he blessed everyone. One of his favorite slogans is, he who dies rich dies disgraced. He loved to give away money as much as he loved to earn it. When the righteous do well, the city rejoices. The city is built up. The city is exalted. Anyone who goes to Endicott, New York, can still see the merry-go-rounds he built so that the kids of the city could have free entertainment. You can still play in the parks he built. There is still an exaltation and a joy. My friends, do we understand our relationship to the city? Do we understand the purposes for which Jesus has put us here? That there should be joy coming from us. Exaltation for our cities. Many of us have come to Boston to do well. It's a great city in which to do well. If you like to work, you can succeed in Boston. But the question is, why has Jesus brought you here? And according to this vision of Solomon, the righteous are in a city so that that city would rejoice. The righteous are in a city so that by their words, there would be a building up of that city. That city would grow and flourish and prosper. If we are in Christ... We should be building up those who are around us. Blessing them with all with which we have been blessed. Of course, when I lay out an illustration like Mr. Johnson or Mr. Endicott, it's easy to step back and to say, right? Well, when I make my first million, I will, you know, help the way they helped. But it's interesting. Solomon is speaking to his son, the crown prince, the heir to the throne. And he's laying out these proverbs, these principles of wisdom. And he says, my son, if you're going to be a good prince, ruling over a happy, prosperous city, then you're going to have to be righteous. You're going to have to bless others with your blessings. And then he goes on to illustrate how to do this. And he starts with words. Now I know that a lot of you don't have a ton of wealth that you can go out and give free health care to your neighbors. But you all have words. And Solomon begins with words. Notice this, verse 12. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. Secondly, verse 13, a talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Then thirdly, where there is no counsel, a people fall 
but in the multitude of counselors there is safety. Solomon again compares the mouth of the wicked which causes a city to be overthrown with the words of the righteous that cause the city to rejoice and to grow, to flourish. Notice in the first place that it is the mouth of the wicked that despises the neighbor, that causes the neighbor's words and actions to be revealed to others. There's a tremendous literal, you guys might have a footnote in your text, lacks heart. The neighbor who lacks heart, who lacks understanding and awareness of the neighbor, despises the neighbor, casually mistreats the neighbor, fails to understand that there is a kindness between us that must exist in order for our neighborhood to flourish. But the man of understanding, the one who has heart, the one who has sympathy and compassion for others, holds his peace. Here's what Solomon is telling his son in the words of the great philosopher Thumper's father. If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. Solomon is saying to his son, future king and prince of the city, if you want Jerusalem to be a happy, prosperous city, don't be hypercritical. Be sympathetic and compassionate. Don't run around finding fault with all your neighbors. That's a great way to throw down a city. If you want to build up a city, love your neighbor. Have compassion for them. Have a heart for them. Understand them and where they're coming from. We have a tremendous application of this in this city. I imagine that many of us have many disagreements with the theological, political, and social outlook of many of our neighbors. Do we know why they believe what they believe? Their beliefs do not spring out of nothing. Their beliefs come from their story. Do we know their story? Do do we love our neighbor and, and seek to understand our neighbor? Who are you? Where have you come from? Why are you here? The man of understanding holds his peace. He does not rush to judgment. He builds up his city by listening. By letting the ears receive truth. By letting the heart receive influence. There is a neighbor who does not despise, but loves and cherishes those who are around. But secondly, Solomon says this neighbor then is careful to bear with the others. A talebearer reveals secrets, but he who is of faithful spirit conceals a matter. The righteous one who with his words builds up the city and causes it to grow, not only does so by listening carefully to others, but does so by keeping confidence with what he hears. A talebearer is is clear and understood, right? The one who goes around and every little thing they learn, the whole community eventually learns, perhaps sooner rather than later. You guys instinctively have figured this out. You live in a world whether it's at work, whether it's here in the congregation, whether it's your neighborhood, and you you end up finding out who it is you can't talk to or who it is that you talk to only about sports and the weather because you don't trust that person. Solomon says to his princely son, 
you must not be this way. You must be the righteous one who with a faithful spirit keeps confidence with others, is trustworthy and dependable. This becomes a tremendous burden for the righteous and faithful spirited one. Indeed, in order to bear these things, it will include concealing it. By this, as we've spoken of before in the book of Proverbs, Solomon speaks of atonement. That is forgiveness. To conceal something in the Hebrew culture doesn't mean to sweep it under the carpet. Doesn't mean to ignore the reality of it. It means to live in a loving manner that I receive from others what they have to say and I receive it in a forgiving spirit. Again, Galatians chapter 6. I listen to this critique and criticism. I do not respond in kind. I receive these words that hurt and I forgive. This is what the prince is called to do. Solomon says to his son, do you want a city that thrives? That grows and flourishes and happy is happy. Then have a listening ear and a loving heart. But he does not call his son to silence. In verse 14, he says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. That is to say that Solomon warns his son that within a city, the people fall to ruin when they are not given good counsel, when they do not come together to share their wisdom. Of course, in context, the people are not coming together because they don't trust each other. They have found that the others around them cannot be depended on. They speak the truth and the truth leaks out to everyone and their reputation is ruined. The gossip destroys the trust. In like manner from verse 12, they find that when they speak to others, the others listen only to respond, not to learn. In this wounded city in which there is no faith in one another, no affection and affirmation for one another, there is consequently no counsel for one another. The hearts are so deeply wounded, the relationships are so estranged and indifferent that it is impossible for the people to come together and solve one another's problems. There is no multitude of counselors. We've all gone home. We've all isolated ourselves in our closets. We're all stirring our hurts and our feelings. If you want a graphic picture of this, spend any time on social media. In which we all go into our silos and bring out our little worldviews. And there isn't a true exchange of counsel. If we want another picture of this, we can see so many times in the architecture of our world, a society that is aiming to alienate people. There is a challenge for us in this city. A city that struggles to rejoice. A city that struggles to grow up together with one another. Because it's a city where it's very, very hard to be a neighbor. So we've actually, walking Antrim Street, gotten our neighbors to like us. Here's how we did it. Every single day, for one hour or an hour and a half, Come rain, come shine, come sleet, come snow. We went for a walk. 
around these streets, same streets, every street, same time, every day, for years. We also did one other thing. Every time I saw someone, I smiled and said hi. And for three years, you know what they did? Looked away. You know what they did in the fourth year? They said hi back. Friends, we live in a city where being a neighbor still counts. Because we live in a city that still has humans. Because they're not monsters. And neither are we. There is a love in Christ for us that according to the Apostle Paul, welcomed us. Romans chapter 15. And we can welcome others. We can welcome them. We can walk quietly, carefully with them. It's a slow and difficult process that requires an incredibly faithful spirit that says, I am willing to love you, and I am willing to love you even when you don't want to be loved by me. I am willing to listen to you even when you don't want to talk to me. That says, my affection for you is not conditioned on your actions toward me. My love for you and my affection for you depends on what Christ has done for me. Because Christ has loved me, I can love you. This is what Solomon wants from his son. A son who is rooted in Christ. Of course, to jump to the end, Solomon's actually talking to his son, Christ, you know, Jesus, prophetically. But in this, Solomon says, our words come first. Our words then, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. The city is kept safe. The city is exalted and built up as all the counselors come together on this bedrock of trust. A faithful spirit in which they speak to one another. In which they hold their peace in the presence of one another. In which love and trust grow through their relationships. But Solomon doesn't have merely in mind words. This is the essential currency of our relationships. If we are to have healthy relationships in a healthy community, we're going to have to have trust and affection, and that takes words. Words are the currency of our relationships. But by contrast, Solomon says our wealth too will matter. When the righteous do well, that is to say that their words are full of love and truth, They build up a community of trust and affection. But then secondly, here in the following verses, Solomon speaks about the right use of wealth. In verse 15, he says, He who is surety for a stranger will suffer, but the one who hates being surety is secure. He says, secondly, in verse 16, A gracious woman retains honor, but ruthless men retain riches. And then thirdly, In verse 17, he says, A merciful man does good for his own soul, but he who is cruel troubles his own flesh. He concludes, The wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. Going back to verse 15, Solomon says to his son, Not only must your words create a culture of trust and of affection, but your works must likewise be oriented. Verse 15, This surety that he speaks of is the ancient practice of promising to give, make good on someone else's debt. There are two problems with this in Solomon's mind. 
First, there is a suffering for those who are a surety. Those who guarantee or pledge someone else's work will be sufficient is probably going to suffer. There is guaranteed suffering, Solomon says, when you guarantee someone else. But secondly, he points out, for a stranger. The preeminent danger in Solomon's mind is that the prince of the city would make promises on behalf of strangers and invest his wealth and power in the welfare of strangers instead of neighbors. Instead of building up his own city by investing in those who are near him, those on whom they depend, they invest in strangers. There's a great illustration from this from the Endicott Johnson story. Mr. Endicott built the shoe company first. Mr. Johnson worked the floor sewing leather together to make shoes. He worked his way up to middle management. And when it was time to transition, Mr. Endicott loaned the money to buy the plant to Mr. Johnson, who in turn made millions and built that beautiful city to take care of all his workers. The generosity of Mr. Johnson was provided for by the generosity of Mr. Endicott. But they weren't strangers. They were co-workers with a shared vision. Solomon in this way encourages us to lean in and invest to the relationships we already have. Let me give you one practical illustration in our lives already. We have a habit in our culture, especially when we think of evangelism, to want to pray and to focus on those who are far off. And we forget that the majority of our outreach belongs to the relationships we already have. I remember once when we were church planting in Oklahoma, we all lived in this one little quadrant on the west side of the main highway. And somebody early on said we should reach out to the east side of the highway. And I said, why are you planning to move there? We have no shortage of relationships that already need the gospel. We have no shortage of friends and neighbors to whom we must already invest. If strangers come along, that's great. Let's love them. But in the meantime, let's love those we already have. The ones that are already with us. But then notice also this way. The one who hates being surety is secure. The stability and welfare of the righteous may depend on being loath to be surety. But even as I speak this, does it sound dissonant in your mind? Does it not seem to ring totally true? Remember something very important about Proverbs. Solomon is just giving us a truth. He's not evaluating it. You see, his royal son, Jesus Christ, will be surety. And he will suffer for it. You see, the truth for those who are to be righteous in this city to grasp is not merely, if you want to stay safe, then don't invest in strangers. They're really expensive. The message just might be, hey, get ready to suffer. Love hurts. The message to the crown prince might be, if you want your city to grow, you're going to have to suffer for someone else. Perhaps there's a call to love in the text. That we should pledge ourselves for the welfare of one another. In this, I would conclude this much. Let us resolve the two sides of the tension. I think Solomon is telling his son, be wise. 
Invest wisely and carefully. Do not be reckless and careless. But when you invest, be ready to lose your investment. It's a both and. Be cautious. Be wise. Love others. But be ready for that love to hurt. Secondly, Solomon says, A gracious woman retains honor and ruthless men retain riches. Having covered how to give wealth, that is wisely yet generously, Solomon now tells his son how to get wealth like a gracious woman retaining honor rather than ruthless men retaining riches. The ruthless men, the violent men, is self-explanatory, right? If you are a ruthless executive who competes in the free market, you will get rich. You will prosper. What's amazing is when we debate about economics is you don't need a free market to be ruthless and to get rich. The ruthless get rich in capitalism too. The ruthless get rich in monarchies and tyrannies and it doesn't matter. The ruthless get rich. It's what they do. But you know what else they do? They get rich by impoverishing everyone else. They get rich by overthrowing their city, by tearing down their city. Consider by contrast the gracious woman. Now think about this for a moment. Solomon is sitting with his son, the crown prince, the heir to the throne, who's growing up to become this ruler over the the city, over Jerusalem. And Solomon says to his son, now teenage boy, when you get to be a, a man, and you get to wear a crown of gold, and you get to have power and authority, make sure you're like a gracious woman. You think that's going to sit well with Solomon? With his son? In a word, Solomon says to his son, to put it very funny, when you are king, make sure you're like a housewife. Make sure you aim to honor others. To deal graciously and kindly with others. This welfare of the city is your aim. The prince is not given power or prosperity in order to self-promote, but in order to seek the welfare of others. The gracious woman who rises in honor is the one who lives in service to others. The visual contrast is stark. What do stay-at-home moms do? They feed kids. They clean houses and clothes and Man, it's just not exciting. Not like a prince who gets to kill people and lead armies. And Solomon says, no, no, no. If you're going to be a good prince, you're going to be a lot more like a stay-at-home mom. For as Jesus himself will repeat in his earthly ministry, if you want to be great in the kingdom, you must become the servant of all. What does it mean to be entrusted with privilege, with power, with prosperity? It means to be one called by Christ into the service of others. To walk graciously in this world. To gather wealth for the sake of sharing wealth. To gather welfare for the sake of others. And then thirdly, Solomon says that the merciful man does good for his own soul. He who is cruel troubles his own flesh. This principle carries us back to the vision of the city, where if there is a prince who acts with all of his power and privilege to bring about cruelty and selfishness, he will end up in the most desperate and dire situations of all princes. He will have no people. 
This is growing organically on the point that Solomon was making at the first part of the chapter when he was looking at his son in relationship to individuals. Now he is looking at his son in relationship to cities, to communities. In both cases, Solomon is urging his son to see this truth, that if we are not kind to one another, if we do not live charitably and patiently with one another, forgiving one another, we won't live together at all for very long. We won't dwell together for very long. The wicked man does a deceptive work. By this, Solomon, in summing up his lesson for his son, is that if you use your time, your energy, your talent, your gifts, in order to increase your own welfare, you're being deceived. You haven't served yourself well. Selfishness is the surest way to lose your life. Mark chapter 8. If you would save your life, you will lose it in the end. But Solomon and Jesus together are laying out for us this principle that he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. I asked my children in family worship this last week, when mommy plants tulips, what does she get in the spring? They said tulips. I was like, are you sure it's not crocuses? They were sure. I was like, are you sure it's not daffodils? They were sure. Solomon says to his son, he who sows righteousness will surely have a reward of righteousness. Of course, Jesus will come along in his earthly ministry and say, a sower went out to sow. And he scattered seed. Jesus will explain this parable to his disciples and say, I'm the sower. Do you remember what role you have in that parable? There were four soils, which Jesus called hearts. There was the path. It was packed really hard and tight and the seed couldn't get in. There was the shallow soil full of rocks where the seed could get in and Sticking some roots, but it couldn't get very high because there was nowhere for the roots to go. Too many rocks. There was the soil that was full of thorns and thistles and the seed could get in and it could get its roots into the soil and it could grow up, but the thorns and thistles choked the life out of it and it withered. And the fourth soil was good. No thorns, no thistles, no rocks, no hard-packed path. Just good, rich, soft soil. And the seed grew up a sure reward, 30, 60, 100 fold. Do you ever think what was Jesus' point in that parable? If Jesus were to end it with a rhetorical question, it would be this. Which one are you? Which one are you this morning? There is a sower of righteousness. His name is Christ. And he will have a sure reward. He will have a happy city in which righteousness reigns. There is a sower and his name is Jesus and he's scattering righteousness in this world. Has he scattered righteousness in your hearts? Is that righteousness growing up inside of you 30, 60, 100 fold? Jesus says in John 15... He is the vine and you are the branches and apart from him, 
you can do nothing. The fruits of righteousness that this world so desperately needs, we can't manufacture. Christ grows them inside us through his spirit and his word. This righteousness that that this city will be overthrown with if it doesn't have. Jesus is in the business of sowing righteousness, his righteousness, into our hearts, into our lives, that from us might grow up righteousness 30, 60, 100 fold. So the desperate question for us this morning is how are our hearts? Packed down hard, trampled by all the sorrows of this world and unable to receive this word? How are our hearts? Stony, rocky, shallow, only to receive this word at a superficial level? How are our hearts? Full of weeds and cares and worries and distractions and boy, can't wait for this sermon to end because I got lots of other things to think about this week. How are our hearts? Have we have, do we have the soft, well-tilled heart that says, Jesus is my sower. Sow this heart with righteousness so that my city can be happy. Dear friends, Jesus makes us good neighbors. Let's live kindly with one another. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we rejoice before you that Jesus has loved us, that he has loved us and dealt kindly with us. We thank you that he has welcomed us and he has borne our burdens and forgiven our sins. Oh, give us hearts to see this, to believe this, to receive this and to rest upon it alone. That within us might well up springs of living water. That within us the kingdom of God might come with grace and with glory. That within us the spirit might have sovereign sway. And that we this week might be instruments of righteousness in your hands in our communities. We thank you for this holy calling to live righteously in this world. And ask that in Christ you would grant what you have commanded. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.